even apolitical people in my family, people who I have to fight tooth and nail with every time an election comes around to get them to actually vote, even those people now are just like, something's got to give, something's got to change. Hello and welcome to the Left Talk podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by Abby Heffer, who is at Open Bookshelf on TikTok, um, who is writing a PhD in authoritarian policy making, but also makes absolutely fantastic TikToks. Abby, how are you doing? Doing good, bit nervous, but that's just being in front of people generally. That's brilliant. It's it's uh, it's all good. It's all good. Don't worry about it. We've uh, we've got this. I'm sure we've got this. We don't need Tumble oh, Dry Myers' help. <laughs> <laughs> Someone needs to have this when she's not here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well hopefully. Um, by the way, to those of you wondering, uh, my regular co-host Tumble Dry Myers will be returning to the show once she has completed her move, and hopefully that should be relatively soon. But today, I am joined by the fantastic Abby Heffer. Where else can people find you, Abby? I'm on Instagram again actively now. I'm the open bookshelf on Instagram. I'm also on Medium as Abby Heffer, where I write stuff about what I post on TikTok at length. Um, and on Twitter, I'm just at Abby Heffer. So that's super easy. Oh, I'm also on Authoritarianism 101 on TikTok as well now, but I haven't posted as much on there recently. Okay, that sounds good. Um, by the way, I would really encourage you to read some of Abby's Medium articles, uh, some of the stuff on authoritarianism versus totalitarianism. Absolutely fantastic stuff. I was uh, reading some articles on that uh, the other day. And let's get into the video. So today we are talking about what has been termed the unbudget. Uh, Kwarteng lasted about as long as the B&Q returns policy well, half as long as the BNQ returns policy as Chancellor, and now both he and Truss in many ways have been replaced by Jeremy Hunt. When it comes to Jeremy Hunt, he's seen as sort of the sensible centrist candidate, but what do we what do we think that this suggests about the direction in which policy is moving within the Conservative Party? And do you think this is gonna be enough to save them? Optically and in terms of where he comes from, what he stands for, he seems very similar to pretty much everyone else that has stepped forward before this big swing towards the right, so extreme right from the Conservative Party. This is the kind of Tory leader that we that we were kind of used to. This is the David Camerons of the world. I think they also went to university together and were in the same clubs together again. So I don't know. Did we do better under Cameron? Were we the people benefiting from from Toryism under Cameron. I know it's gotten particularly extreme lately, but I don't think we were really, you know, thriving yeah. before all of this extremism. I mean, one one positive thing from my side about Jeremy Hunt is that he cares a little bit about immigration policy and rising anti-immigration sentiment, if only because it impacts his own children, which, like, you know what, fair enough. I'm a mother of an international child. I can empathize. And I'm super sorry that him and his partner like consider this and amongst all of the other challenges associated with raising bilingual, biracial, intercultural kids. But he does seem to fit this kind of self-serving, self-interested, you know, looking after his own kind of leader. Mm. Yeah. But we, we know, we, we know this leader. We've seen him before. We'll see him again, and quite frankly, I'm a bit bored of it. 
Yeah, he's a, a clone of uh, of the the Tories of the Cameron era, I think. Um, he's also largely in step with Andrew Bailey, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, and his thinking. Their focus is very much on stability. Uh, and one of the things that Hunt said was he wanted to provide confidence and stability. I don't know. I just find it so exhausting. And this is something that kind of relates to my to my work. I, I just find this whole process of switching leaders, going back, forward getting more extreme getting less extreme from the tory party i just find it all exhausting and if people like us who are politically engaged find it exhausting imagine what it's doing to the rest of the country people who are already kind of slipping into this political apathy of just not giving a shit about what happens at the top you know it's it's dangerous all of us slipping into this even those of us who are engaged it's i'm just tired i don't know about you Authoritarian policymaking is obviously your area, so it kind of makes sense to ask you the question, do you think that this suggests a move away from democratic norms and towards more authoritarian norms, even though we have obviously the, the trappings of democracy still in place, uh, and as, as you write, authoritarianism is, isn't necessarily incompatible with the ideas of democracy of the trappings of of democracy uh, yeah what are your thoughts on the impacts upon all of this on our democracy yeah i'm always a bit cautious about saying that we're wholesale kind of slipping towards authoritarianism because i'm not sure one that i'm qualified because i'm a china specialist i'm not a specialist in uk politics as such um but i am quite good and this is something that i do in my own research at looking at individual policies and practices and trying to identify whether these individual practices are authoritarian or whether they um, facilitate democracy. And one thing I found pretty worrying in our context, and this is why I ended up starting a TikTok, this is why I ended up trying to provide sort of free educational resources about authoritarianism so that we might all be able to recognize it better. One thing I find really worrying about our current government is the sheer volume of authoritarian policies that they're trying to push through. So legit legislation that they're pushing through the commons, sometimes following due democratic process, but with things like the Human Rights Bill, the British Human Rights Bill, they weren't even following our established democratic process when they were pushing that through. Luckily, it's been tabled for now, uh, shelved for now, but who knows when that's going to make a comeback. But in terms of the actual legislation they're putting through, a lot of this is decidedly authoritarian. It sabotage of accountability it means that we as the voting public can't hold them accountable for their actions or inaction in the case of the cost of living crisis and it makes living under this regime and remember the regime isn't like a pejorative bad word for an authoritarian regime regime is just the center of political power in a country it, it makes living under this regime much more difficult for the people that the country is supposed to protect you know the state is responsible for protecting its citizens and it's just not doing that because one it's distracted by a million different unnecessary leadership crises and two because the legislation that's being pushed through is designed to protect the party in power rather than actually govern so it's a very frustrating situation but i would still shy away from saying that it's a wholesale slip towards authoritarianism yeah i Obviously, the, the circles I run in are circles to do with the academic side of, not academic side of, excuse me, academic study of fascism. And 
I know a lot of people are similarly cautious, uh, but because of the kind of thing that we do, and because of the, we kind of uh, study the kind of cultural side of the rise of fascism, it's a lot easier, I think, for us to draw sort of more direct parallels because we're looking for indicators like rather than policies themselves we're looking for sentiments so like one of the indicators for example is anti-judiciary sentiments and a lot of these people who are at the top of the tory party now were brought forward during the uh, enemies of the people era of brexit anti-judiciary sentiment there's a great deal of connection there and it's why we've ended up with these leaders who are just frankly terrible. I was put it nicely. <laughs> yes, yeah. To, to put it in a in a nice way, but currently the options for taking over an alternative leader to take over are probably Sunak, uh, Wallace, and Morden. And you can kind of define the factions in the Conservative Party now by whether they are pro or anti Sunak, much more than whether they're pro or anti Truss. And I think there's uh, a lot of talk at the moment about Ben Wallace coming in. Ben Wallace, the current defence secretary, is a open homophobe and voted against gay marriage. But he, his support, he, he has had people canvassing support, but at the same time has said that he wants to remain in the position as defence secretary. And the Tories haven't really got anywhere to go. No one kind of wants the poison chalice of government at the moment, particularly as Jeremy Hunt appears to be introducing Austerity 2.0. Bear in mind, Austerity 1.0 is how we got into this shit in the first place, to to put it mildly. And the, I was listening to the economist uh, James Meadway talking on Navarra Media the other day, and he made the very good point that actually there's not much more they can do in terms of cutting public services to balance the books. Uh, and the estimates range from sort of £72 billion black hole from the OBR uh, to the IMF's £62 billion estimate of a black hole in public finances. They really feel that they need to balance the books, but there's not actually much more they can cut without considerable infrastructural collapse. I don't know how much more in terms of UK infrastructure uh, they they can cut before it actually becomes a sort of societal collapse kind of thing going on. I don't know. I don't know where this is going. You know, I find all of this really interesting in the most sort of morbid fascination sense of the term. Like, so I live in Germany, like we talked about that already. And the German liberals, so who could be considered sort of economically liberal, but also socially liberal, so sort of like the right of centre, in the German context, the conversations that they're having, so they should be sort of similar to where the Tory party would possibly be in, in the UK context. And the conversations that they're having about um, sort of social progressiveness, so looking at um, LGBTQI plus rights, looking at equality in the workplace, gender equality, looking at racial discrimination, the conversations that they're having over here from what should be sort of the right side, like the right wing side of the spectrum, is just an entire world away from what our conservatives are playing with. And on the one side, I'm, you know, we're all pretty left wing, all of us in this circle in, in the UK. 
I think most of the UK is pretty left wing, but none of that makes it into sort of mainstream politics. And when you compare it to other countries like Germany, which is economically an incredibly successful country, despite COVID, despite the challenges of decoupling from countries like China, the problems with the US under Trump, you know, you look at other successful European countries with similar histories to us, and their right wing politics is just not on the same level. There's none of this discussion about um, trying to actively damage the interests of the poorer sections of society. There's, there's conversations about how to protect these groups and how to make sure that being business friendly doesn't harm any other vulnerable social groups. And then you look at the Tories who are reveling in being able to harm as many people as possible with one policy suggestion. And it's just, you, you wonder how on earth these people justify what they do to themselves because everyone thinks that they're a good person, right? Everyone's the protagonist of their own story. The Jeremy Hunts of the world consider themselves good people regardless of how they got there or what they've done to the NHS, you know? And how do they then justify these policies to themselves? Because I couldn't. I, and that's not just as someone who considers themselves left of center in, in the UK context, Perhaps I'm in the middle in the German context because they are wildly further left than we could ever hope to be. But I just, I can't, I can't relate to it. I can't understand these people. And, and I guess I'm not unusual in that. Who can relate to these people genuinely? Yeah, I think it's, it's partly a symptom of a society which is unbalanced towards the right in terms of our Overton window but strangely is in denial of that fact and treats the far right and the far left as though they are equal threats, or sometimes the far left, I think, are treated as though they are more of a threat than the far right. And that unbalancing means that the far right have a lot more power. They are so much more... They have pull and influence in the regime, to use it in the sense that you use the term regime. Um, They have the pull on political power in our country. And unfortunately, this has led to a situation where the the unbudget itself, who is it for? That's, I think, one of the questions that we kind of have to ask. Who Who is this for? Who does it provide stability for? Arguably financial markets. But at the end of the day, who's going to vote for them? Because the Conservatives have refused to rule out tampering with the triple lock on pensions. They've refused to rule out cuts to both health and defence with the announcement of this unbudget. And yet, somehow, the plans to scrap the banker's bonus cap are still going ahead. Still, banker's bonuses are what's being prioritised here, even as Jeremy Hunt attempts to balance the books and calm the markets. And if you know anything about the 2008 financial crash, you know that one of the things that caused it was deregulation of the banking system. This is going <laughs> to cause things to get worse, not better. It's absolutely staggering. And that kind of leads to the question, have they kind of just given up? Are they are they throwing in the towel and going, well, we're probably going to lose the next election anyway, Let's look like we're the party of fiscal responsibility just before Labour take over. And then we can blame the last Labour government for all of the country's problems at the next election. Do you think that's their game? I mean, I 
I genuinely, I was so shocked by these policies that I genuinely considered whether or not Liz Truss and Quateng might actually be sort of agents aiming to destroy the Tory party because there's just no justification. Even in liberal, like, I also am engaged in liberal circles here, so I like to have conversations across sort of like the spectrum line. And it's just not justifiable, even by sort of neoliberals here over in Europe, you know, that's, it's just not justifiable. And I genuinely wonder, is Liz Truss trying to sabotage the Tory party and make them absolutely unelectable? So on the other swing of this, and if not, is she then trying to destroy the government so that the next government that takes over can't do anything with what they're left with? And I don't know which one seems more likely at this point. And one thing, like, to go back to authoritarianism again, like, looking at individual policies, again, that individual budgets that could be considered authoritarian practices. One of the key aspects of authoritarianism is that, yes, there is a little bit of diversity and there are diverse interests and ideas that can be brought in, but only if they don't challenge the ultimate authority of the regime. And as you just said, our regime right now is skewed very dramatically to the right of the spectrum in terms of appealing to business over people, appealing to the very wealthy over those who don't have anything. And in order to sort of justify this, um, the regime will use these sort of artificial divisions of us and them and attacking this artificial other um, in order to justify finding ways to get its own people into positions of power or into positions of decision-making power where they can then tip the scales in favor of themselves mm. and i think with the budget that's what we're looking at you know we've we've found that in a lot of political systems today across the world wealth does translate as political power so the more wealth you have the more access to the trappings of wealth that you have the more likely you are to be able to influence political power and therefore hold on to that wealth so when we're talking about authoritarian practices you know this is this is exactly the kind of policy that we need to be calling out and saying well actually no this isn't just bad for poor people this isn't just bad for people on benefits this isn't just bad for people who might want to use the nhs you know all of us this is genuinely bad for our entire political system whether you're right-leaning left-leaning whether you're centrist no matter where you sit on the spectrum this is bad for the entire democratic system that we're supposed to be so proud of you know authoritarianism isn't something that just on the other side of the world and you can be like oh thank god we're not like that this yeah. is something that is actively happening on the ground in our country right now so we can't just sit here and be complacent especially not if we want to be proud of being british if we're proud of our political system and want to you know hold up this this flag of nationalism or whatever or patriotism how are we going to do that when our own system is an absolute abject failure by all standards right now yeah what you're saying is kind of a reflection, actually, of, or rather a rejection, uh, an inversion of the libertarian arguments of the IEA and other groups that I know that you know that I have spent a long time arguing against right-wing libertarianism <laughs> on TikTok, and I'm perhaps more familiar than most British political commentators with the the far-right libertarianism that kind of defines groups like the IEA and the Tufton Street lot. And I was saying to Aid in an episode that we didn't actually end up airing that the Tufton Street group and the, the IEA are very much their Hayekian sort of leaning libertarians. 
right-wing libertarians who don't believe that money could really be a constraint on anyone. They believe the only kind of constraints that you can impose really are government, and government is the problem. You get rid of government, and everything else just falls into place. It'll be fantastic. Yes, that's, that's how you do things. Actually, the reality is that money does constrain you, and economists know this, but the way that a lot of libertarian think tanks get around this, and the way that a lot of so-called libertarian economists get around this is by being actively anti-empiricist. So if you look at the Austrian school of economics, for example, a, a prime example of, of libertarian uh, thought and uh, libertarian, I'm trying not to call it thought because it's not thought, it's almost anti-thought, is the rejection of empirical economics, believing that you can't know things through experience in economics and that's just a refle uh, a rejection of the entire our entire understanding of economics as it's an in uh, a rejection of our entire understanding of sociology and i think that explains to some degree the irrational way in which truss and quateng have acted and i think rishi sunak did in fairness to him call this out sorry just to make a point about the anti-expertism like again this is something that feeds into the authoritarian argument that justify authoritarian practices and policies especially right now when it comes to things like brexit where you've got black and white yes no in out answers to questions that absolutely do not fit into clear-cut boxes like and this again, is a technique used by authoritarian regimes. Either you support us or you don't, either you're with us or you're without us, you know, or you were against us. These are these are very traditional arguments used by authoritarian regimes and authoritarian actors alike to prevent discussion, because as soon as you bring, as you said, empiricism into it, suddenly the diversity of ideas at the top, the diversity of ideas that's going to feed into policymaking becomes much broader you suddenly have a lot more different perspectives you have a lot of different angles that aren't necessarily in support of what the regime wants and sometimes this is necessary that's how you get sort of technocrats who sort of rise up through party ranks and authoritarian regimes and provide often quite useful um, policy suggestions involving experts and, and the like but only if it doesn't challenge the regime and that's what i'm seeing with this whole brexit conversation this whole um culture wars conversation you know that there's either you're with us or against us and expertism is is leveraged within that to either support us or you're disregarded and you're accused of cancel culture or whatever else they throw into this ridiculous conversation and that's how authoritarian leaders do this as well it's it's an authoritarian practice designed to stop a conversation to prevent access to information on the part of the public and to stop individual voters, individual political participants from being able to act within the political system itself. And again, textbook authoritarianism. And you start adding all of this up, it does become quite a worrying picture. Volksgemeinschaft, the, the people's community, the idea of a society that is united and harmonious towards uh, an ideal that really realistically can't be realized because there has to be a balancing between individuals and the community and ultimately where you want the regime the power to lie is not in a center but you want it to lie in the people ideally um yeah i was going to ask as well 
I, I don't know. People are saying that Truss is Prime Minister in name only. Uh, she's repeatedly apologised now, and she's actually met with the sort of more centrist wing of the Tories, the, the One Nation wing of the, the Conservatives, to apologise to them. And the Daily Mail has turned on her. I think these are all signs that she could well be a goner. The Daily Star actually have a uh, live feed trying to find <laughs> out where an, whether an iceberg lettuce or Liz Truss will last longer. And at the moment, I'm afraid my money is probably on the iceberg lettuce. You know what? This frustrates me, though. I, I see a lot of people calling for her to resign. And I'm just like, can we can we genuinely afford another like absolutely pointless leadership campaign? Like Tories are going to Tory all the way to the next election, and changing the figurehead isn't going to help us a lot. Like on the ground, you know, it's going to cost the state even more money that it allegedly doesn't have to help us in the cost of living crisis, and it's going to cost us time that none of us really have with winter literally coming, and. I mean, what might be worth the time is is a general election, which if the Tories are able to pull a legit candidate out of the bag, they would then have at least a decent mandate to do whatever it is they're going to do. But right now, they've lost their mandate for rule, no matter who they're going to put in. And and they've lost it even among those who they like, co-opted into voting for them by promising to stop immigration, which, again, they didn't do. But I worry that like even if they were going to give us a general election and even if you know we got a different government in even if we've got sort of a labor government in or any other government in are we going to be able to reverse the authoritarian legislation that's already been pushed through by the tories or will the successor government conveniently find that actually it's quite nice to criminalize protest actually it's quite nice to sit here at the top and not have to listen to the extreme left or to liberals or to you know anyone mm -hmm. they've set a dangerous precedent and i'm not entirely confident that a government that succeeds them is not gonna just run with that you know yeah. so i think as much as we should be calling for a general election and that's great i reckon those of us who are not tory voters should be putting as much energy as we can into signaling to labor to the lib dem to other parties what we would want and what we'd be willing to vote for from our next government. Like okay. we can't get them complacent thinking that like an election, even apolitical people in my family, people who I have to fight tooth and nail with every time an election comes around to get them to actually vote, which I think is the case facing a lot of working class families, to be frank. Even those people now are just like, something's got to give, something's got to change, gotten to this yeah. point. And the next government has to, has to listen to that. Yeah. How, how we hold a government to account that might have a large majority, um, you know, the Labour Party in recent polling is looking like it might have 400 seats and the incentive to change things when you've got a 400 seat majority, as you say, very mm -hmm. slim, very slim indeed. Uh, but the Tories are in a kind of catch-22 because um, Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee, is resisting pressure from backbenchers to... Uh, shorten Liz Truss's term because a lot of people believe that this could actually lead to a general election and with Labour 36 points ahead in the polls there's high estimates that the Conservatives could get like 20 to 60 seats and low estimates that they could get one seat that they could be a smaller party than the Lib Dems after the election mm -hmm. which would 
be absolutely staggering. It could lead to a situation where the SNP is the official opposition in Westminster, which is insane. Just uh, like it's, I, I understand why they are why they feel trapped, and I did just want to point out that there's another crisis on the way as well. The economist Richard Murphy has been pointing towards the interest and mortgage rates crisis, which is coming, um, and arguing that effectively you can't control inflation, much as the government might want to. You, you can't control inflation uh, because the, the main factors influencing inflation right now are defined by international pressures. What you can do is raise wages and control interest rates. And the interest rates crisis is going to get worse. Young people who rent in the UK already know that renting it just it, it makes life and and the possibility of owning a home almost impossible but now what we could see is people who have mortgages and have been paying those mortgages for years being turfed out onto the street or turfed out into rented accommodation because they can't afford to pay their mortgage anymore because there's going to be such a bad spike in interest rates Never mind the reversal of the energy price guarantee after April 2023, which could see prices of £6,600, according to Ofgem, uh, for the average payer in 2023. Just absolutely staggering figures. And I, as, I, as you say, I, I have to agree with your apolitical friends. It's difficult to know where we go from here. It's interesting as well, because this isn't just a crisis facing the UK, obviously. It's a global crisis. Like you said, it's connected to these sort of global economic trends and so on. But these kind of um, difficulties when faced by the middle class, and obviously I have a bit of an issue with the term middle class. I don't really know if I think it exists because I think middle classes, as we're seeing with, with the mortgage crisis, they're in just as much of a precarious situation, just as dependent on a salary as the working classes. Um, but when you get the sort of middle class, wealthier working class facing the same kind of precarious crisis that the precariat or the people at the very um, bottom of the social system suffer from, you are looking at a very real possibility of wholesale regime change. This is something that's facing the Chinese system right now as well, where homeowners who have been sort of caught up in the in the real estate bubble are now starting to protest in larger and larger numbers. And this is considered a far greater threat to the stability of the regime than workers' protests, which have also increased over the last few years, but which are generally treated with um, respect, with, with dignity, with concessions. When you have a big strike in, in, in China, generally, they're going to get what they want and they're treated, yeah, surprisingly well. Um, but the homeowner protests that are going on at the moment, that's something that's really terrifying the regime or that should terrify the regime. And I think we're in a similar situation. As soon as that sort of discontent, this real survival on the edge um, discontent spreads upwards towards the wealthier working classes, you, you've really got a, a whole system change question on your hands. And that is not easy. And that's not going to make people's lives any easier, I, I don't think. Yes, um, I 100% agree. 100% am with you because it is, it is going to get worse, particularly with the triple lock on pensions. I'm just going to show you one final video before we finish this side of the episode because I'm aware we're on a time scale due to commitments we both have. Um, and I actually have one video I wanted to show you. Just to close off the episode, I thought we could react to Miriam Margolis on uh, Radio 4 
and her mm. reaction to being forced to be in the same proximity as Jeremy Hunt. Just 20 seconds of video that I think give us the, the boost that we need. When I saw him there, I just said, you've got a hell of a job, the best of luck. And what I really wanted to say, <laughs> fuck you. Oh, no, 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 bastard, you mustn't say you know? that. But you can't say that. Yes, no, oh, you can't say that. You've got to, we'll have to have you out of the studio now. Yes, we'll have to have you we out will of the with, studio. with uh, many apologies. <laughs> the Nobody... time now is half past eight, a time for the sports news, and Carthy is with us. Oh, she's fantastic. I love her. I love her. <laughs> just, I wish we could all be as unfiltered as she is. Oh, she's just, just fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, okay, and that, I thought that was just a boost we needed at the end of this rather depressing look at the political climate. Sorry. Um, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's it's a reflection of the reality that we live in. Like, okay, so uh, thank you very much for joining me, Abby, and hopefully you will join me again in the future. You can find Abby on Twitter under at Open Bookshelf, and I believe your link tree is linked in your Twitter, is it not? Yep, but my Twitter is at Abby Heffer. Oh, the that... TikTok and the Instagram are open. Excuse me. Yeah. Yes, the TikTok. Sorry. Uh, I meant to say the the, the, the TikTok is, um, yeah, the, your link tree is linked in your TikTok. Excuse me. Um, yeah, oh, I messed that up, didn't I? Damn it. Oh, well, I'll have again, to leave that in now. No, I'll have to leave that in now. I'm just going to leave that in. That's fine. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, do follow the podcast. And uh, hopefully we will see you again soon. 